For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 2, Episode 62 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami, the first of three in our year-end series, starts now. Today on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. It looked at improving granularity. And one of the F4 patients, they show you that how that F4 patients had, for instance, 96% of his tissues F4 and the left 34% F3. Versus another patient, they had about 60% F4 and the rest is 30% F3 and some F2. In that way, they're showing you that F4 patients, for instance, are not created equally. We can actually diagnose Nash. So, a combination of liver stiffness and PDFF is an accurate NASH diagnostic biomarker. So if we want to use this technology to say, does my patient have NASH or not as a probability, we can do that. The second thing that was shown, we can automate this technique. We can now do this in a five-minute session. We were reaching out to people who were asymptomatic, had never been told they had any kind of liver disease. As a population, they don't really know anything about NASH, but it was our believe that if offered a convenient way to engage in testing and learning about their health, that they would take advantage of that and self-select. comes to a close, Surfing the Nash Tsunami has invited back nine panelists from earlier in the year to look back on specific lessons and advances in NAFLD and Nash over the past year. On today's podcast, join liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green as they interview Mazen Nureddin, Alina Allen, and Wayne Eskridge on areas they saw progress. Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We come to the end of our first full year, second year's podcast. We want to wish you all a happy holiday, all our listeners and downloaders and subscribers and friends. And we have much to celebrate this year. Over 33,000 downloads from 85 countries on six continents. About three times the average episode viewership, listenership, downloading in the fourth quarter of this year as compared to what we had in the fourth quarter of last year. 14 new guests made their first appearances on the podcast this year, including some recognized leading lights like Arun Sanyal and Scott Friedman. I was able to take a vacation for a week and have Donna Cryer, and as she put it, the patients have taken over the podcast, but put together a really riveting program on recruiting in minority communities. Our first media partnerships with the Fourth Global Nash Congress and EASL, tripling in our subscriber and partner count, even higher growth than that among healthcare providers, and frankly, a lot of fun and a chance to meet a fantastic community of people, some of whom I met in 2020, many more of whom I met in 2021. So last year at year end, we didn't want to go dark for two weeks, so we improvised on the fly, called some friends and said, hey, can we have conversations with you? And those were our two year-end episodes. This year, when we put out notes, there were nine people who wanted to come in and talk. And we were even able to designate specific subjects for each one and organize ourselves a lot better. So what will happen in the next 10 days is we will have each day either a new episode, which will include three conversations, roughly 20 minutes in length, or 
on the off days from those, we will have the full interviews with each of our nine participants, and those run on the average so far about 35 to 40 minutes. That will take us all the way through to January 2nd, and on January 3rd, we'll be recording our first new episode of the year, which we plan to drop on January 4th. We are looking to post a 10th conversation with a mystery guest. If so, that'll be part of episode 64. It'll post on January 3rd, and we're going to keep that as a secret until we get it scheduled. So here's what you hear on the podcast over the holiday break. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd, and we are dropping episode 62. It features three different conversations, one with Mazen Nureddin on AI and histology, one with Lena Allen on MRE, and more broadly, where NITs fit into the future of treatment of patients and drug development, and one with Wayne Eskridge about his son's study, the first ever study to appear in a referee journal that was developed and funded by a patient advocacy organization, his organization, Fatty Liver Foundation. Then tomorrow, on Thursday the 23rd, we will have Mazen's full interview, Thursday the 24th, Alina's full interview, and on Saturday the 26th, Wayne's full interview. We'll be back on the 27th with episode 63, and that will start with Manal Abdul-Malik talking about use of old and new drugs to treat and maintain patients today and in the future, and what makes her optimistic about the next two to five years. Following with Ken Cousy talking about the push for multi-specialty treatment and the clinical care pathway, and Jorn Schottenberg talking about AI or cost-effectiveness issues in Europe. We've not decided which yet. You'll have to listen to here. That'll be on the 27th. The 28th, we will have our one-on-one with Manal, 29th with Ken, 30th with Jorn. On December 31st, we'll post our last episode of the year on the last day of the year, episode 64. That will include Andrew Scott talking about patient advocacy, all of the Global Liver Institute being ready for prime time. It will include Jeff Lazarus talking about the push made to advance the public health agenda for NAFLD around the world. And it will wrap up with a conversation with Stephen Harrison, Louise, and me reminiscing about year two of the podcast and how this is different than when we got started. Then on the first, we will have the conversation with Jeff and Andrew. And on the second, we will have a conversation with Stephen. And we're back on the third, recording the first episode of the new year. So listen to all of this stuff at your leisure. But in every case, we've made sure to include at least 15 more minutes of content in the conversation than is in the episode itself. So there's reason for you to keep listening. Some of the good stuff is in the back. Enjoy your holiday. Stay safe. Surf on. Relax. Take your mind off your work for a while. And when you come back in January, come back refreshed because if 2022 is anything like 2021, it will be an amazing year for the fatty liver community. It's certainly going to be a cool year for the podcast. Stay safe. Surf on. And uh, see you for episode 63. Bye-bye now. First, Dr. Mazen Nureddin, director of the Fatty Liver Program at Cedars-Sinai will discuss advances in the use of artificial intelligence to strengthen our reading of liver histology. So this chapter of our 2021 year-end interviews is with our good friend Mazen Nureddin. Mazen, how are you today? I'm very good. How are you? I'm fine. Mazen actually, turns out, is batching it until the end of the year. His wife and children are overseas with her family, and he is at home by himself. We're hoping he will eat reasonably well, and drink moderately, and take good care of himself. We also, as we will for all these interviews, have Louise with us. Hey, Louise, how are you doing this afternoon? Very well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. I watched Louise do a 10-minute practicum on how to use her computer. We were having a hard time getting her mic and audio set up, but she went into the guts of her software, figured the whole thing out. Oh, some AI I can do, but it takes a while. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was going to have one of those lines about did all that while whipping up a souffle and standing on one leg, but we don't have to go there tonight. (laughs) So the format for these year-end interviews is pretty straightforward, which is we've got a topic, it's a broad topic, and we will allow whoever our host is to decide how she or he would 
like to handle it. The topic we handed Mazen was to ask about advances in AI and or cost effectiveness in the last year. Those two subjects don't seem to lump together, but they're both things Mazen knows a bunch about. And so the format's really simple. Um, what have we learned in the past year? What do we expect to learn in the next year? And he'll talk and we'll ask questions and there'll probably be jokes and merriment along the way. Mazen, why don't you just kick us off? So what do you want to talk about within that uh, range? There will not be a lot of jokes. It's a rainy day and my kids are away. So it's going to be a serious day. And by the way, I'm not alone. You know, my parents live with me. Let's dive in. What I want to say about AI, it's a really deep field. And we're really just at the surface in hepatology. There are a couple of good papers that are review papers. One from the Mayo Clinic that was published. A very nice comprehensive review that I will direct you to. We wrote a short one as well in hepatology about AI. As I mentioned, AI is a very deep field and we're at the very surface. But in general, AI, you want to think about it as two big things, machine learning and deep learning. An example of the deep learning, what you hear about the CNN, not the news channel, but the convolutional neural network that, for instance, the path AI came from. And machine learning, there are many, many examples. So I don't want to dig deep. I'll direct you to these reviews that they were published in hepatology. But it's a really evolution field that we're still learning, we're trying to learn, we're submitting papers, and we still get asked questions that you can tell people are still learning uh, what is AI because it's totally different field in terms of what you present, what's the training cohort, what's the validation cohort, how, how you present data, yada, yada. The AI can really touch every aspect in, in science. But the most interesting aspect in hepatology on how to improve diagnostics, right? That's what we are trying to improve our ability in, especially in the field of NASH. And the most important areas are the following, the diagnostics using non-invasive testing and histology. And what we have seen the most progress in the last year was the improvement in the histology. I think we will see more coming in the diagnostics in the next year. The reason why I say that because most of the diagnostics were in the abstracts form that we will see it coming in publication form in the next year. But the histology, we already saw multiple abstracts plus publications in the last year. So let me set the stage for the histology. Roger, you guys talked about this in multiple episodes, why we need that in histology. And I talked about this in, in the ASLD in one of the clinical workshops that Jasby Jaj invited me to talk about. As mentioned before, histology in NASH has been an issue, and I don't want to dig deep into what's the issues and to repeat previous episodes, but in a short summary, the intra and inter-observer variability has been a big problem. That happens even with experienced pathologists. Now, with experienced pathologists, the it's a less a problem, but we don't have too many of those. And the NASH, as you know, it's a tsunami, which is your show. And we have multiple and many, many trials that are in the pipeline right now. We have thousands of patients that they're going to go through phase three trials, and they're going to have a biopsy that needs to be read in a proper way. I don't want to count numbers of the experienced pathologists but they're probably not going to match that thousands in a timely fashion. So AI or machine learning and histology can be a very attractive way to match or cover multiple 
things or multiple gaps in conventional histology, such as the inter and intra-observer variability, improving the granularity, and I'll get to the examples of that in a second, maybe overcoming the placebo effect, and of course, what I just talked about, overcoming the number of the expert hepatopathologists that we need to have. The papers that I want to point to are probably a couple of papers, uh, but the pioneers that are leading the way in machine learning in Nash histology are Histoindex and Path AI. There are other companies, I don't want to take away from them, but uh, we have seen most of the publication coming or the presentation coming from Histoindex and Path AI. So the publication I want to point out to you was published by Taylor Weiner et al. in Hepatology in 2021. And I had a tutorial on, on, on this one. And this came actually from one of the larger randomized control trial. I don't remember which one was one of the Gilead trials, but basically what happened is Zach Goodman was the pathologist who we know is outstanding pathologist. And if you want to have a pathologist for your NASH clinical trial, Zach Goodman is one of them. And he was kind of the standard reference, if you want to call it, when he assessed steatosis, lobular inflammation, as well as ballooning, which is the pathogenic features of NAS score, and of course the fibrosis. They put them in the machine, the CNN network, they came out with the readout for the machine. What they did in that paper, eventually they had, after that, a panel of three pathologists that they looked back at these lesions, the steatosis, inflammation, and ballooning. And what they found that if the, you get three pathologists, they had a good kappa between them reading these three lesions, which is great. It tells you the pathologists are great, but again, you need three of them to read the lesions to agree on it, which is many, many of them. And I go back, if you have multiple clinical trials, having three pathologists to agree on the lesions and the numeric reading is a lot of work. What they did after having these three pathologists, they used the Path AI that was based on initial Zach Goodman reading, and they looked at the correlation between these three pathologists reading and the Path AI, and what they found that they had a very good correlation and kappa reading between the Path AI as well as the pathologist. So this is a way that the Path AI or the machine learning method is correlating highly I had a question yesterday that they said, well, maybe like there is some error that has been made in the reading initially that the pathologist did and the AI picked up that error. And my answer was the method was initially based on a very experienced pathologist. And if such an error was made, what the machine will do probably will capture that error, but at least it will be consistent reading that error and many other right things across clinical trials. So it will not vary across trials, if I make sense. The other thing on that trial, if, and I'll stop after that study um, in a second, what it did also, it looked at improving granularity. And what I mean by that, it was a very eloquent work where they had an example of two F four patients. And one of the F4 patients, they show you that how that F4 patients had, for instance, 96 percent of his tissues F4 and the left 3-4% F3. Versus another patient, they had about 60% F4 and the rest is 
30% F3 and some F2. So in that way, they're showing you that F4 patients, for instance, are not created equally, and they show you the change and an example of change how these patients change from F4 and F3 to F3 and F2's pre and post treatment, which is like very granular versus the conventional way, which is just one linear line looking at changes and the conventional methods, which is one stage fibrosis improvement. The final two things in that paper, they were a couple of things. They created a machine learning score that they looked at one of the Gilead study, which was the ATLAS study, which was not statistically significant, but the placebo rate was high and when they, they use the machine learning, looking at the treatment arm as well as the placebo response, the placebo was much lower compared to the conventional therapy. And using that machine learning method, the study was statistically significant. So it makes you wonder if that's a better way. And finally, as in all study, they looked at correlation between machine learning and clinical events, clinical liver events. Although there were not too many, they did correlate the machine learning with clinical clinical liver events, and what they used is the Gilead Stellar 3 and 4. So I thought it was a very eloquent study showing the promise of machine learning and histology, assessing different lesions in the NASCOR as well as fibrosis, correlating with events, maybe mitigating the placebo effect and improving granularity. So I think it was a big step toward showing the promise of such technologies in histology. I, I can talk about the subsequent study that they did also trying to introduce other things to their machine learning, but I, I just want to give it back to you first. Louise, you have you have any questions or comments? I find that interesting listening to that in the context of the recent intercept withdrawal with the AMA because they're going for a complete reread from how I understood it, of their 18-month biopsies by a consensus approach. Would you be looking, therefore, to put AI? Which approach do you think, having listened to what you were saying there, would they be better doing? Or would it be a combination of all to really deep dive into that information so that they can get this medication through in the best way? Louise, that's a brilliant question. What time is it in England? I'm obviously still awake. You ask great questions even when you're asleep. So, so why are you surprised that at any hour of the day or night, Louise would show up with a brilliant question? No, I'm not surprised at all. She always asks great questions, but she started with one of the most important questions that we are all looking for to be implemented one day. This is the core question of this, to be honest. When are we going to apply those machine learning technologies in clinical trials, especially if they're just through trial? And the answer to your question is absolutely yes. I would love to see it in the regenerative trial being implemented. As you know, and I don't speak for regulatory um, authorities, there should be steps for them to accept machine learning as a way to accept a drug based on these machine learning methods, which my understanding, they're not there yet. To me, as patient advocate, which is, that's what I do, what I do every day. I want to find a treatment to help my patients. Two, I'm a researcher. Three, I'm a clinician. I do have something in front of my eye that is telling me more about histology. It's more granular. It's correlating with outcome, which I understand the regulator that they're looking for mostly, which is correlating with clinical liver events. Why you don't implement it now and give me a drug that will help me right now? 
Nevertheless, I do understand that they need to be conservative, look at it with multiple lenses, yada yada. But at least to your point, they should do it whether they accept it or not as a way for their approval of drug. They should analyze it and say, hey, the conventional method that they were holding, were being held accountable for showed so-and-so and the machine learning showed this and that. So we should start doing these kind of comparisons all along to show the field what these methods are doing. Luis, get another question or you want me to take the next one and then you can come back? Go ahead, please. I did have another question. It's always seemed strange to me that we didn't use Metavere. Everything you were detailing there was this difficulty in moving back that one stage and we know that all F4s aren't the same. Whereas Ishak, by dividing into more categories, seems to show better, in my understanding, where you can fit in liver-related outcomes with F5, F6. And we've seen some clinical research data that splits those back into the Ishak format. So maybe we're just trying to jump too big a hoop and just use a better grading scale that allows us to see and delineate between the different levels. Ruiz, do you know that song? I'm going to change it. I'm respectful. Instead of this girl on fire, I'm going to say this woman on fire. So your questions are on fire. You can keep girl in. <laughs> I'm going to use the song. You're on fire. The questions are right on. We have had discussions among us. For instance, I had discussions. There have been discussions, internal discussions. I don't want to spill it out. For instance, in the Nash forum, I was discussing with, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but I would say it with um, Arun Sanyam Naga Chalosani about the, you know, we put the Nash cirrhosis paper for the Nash forum, but we're talking about various things. And one of the things we talk about, if Ishak fibrosis should be used in Nash cirrhosis clinical trials, because as you alluded, is more, it's one to six. It's, it's more granular um, than the NAS-CRN that is being used, uh, especially on the end spectrum when you get to three and above. So there has been a discussion or have been discussions. The AI, the thing what I like about it is not just they started breaking down the same patient, the same exact patient saying this patient has so much F4 and so much F3. And... If we have time today, I'm going to get to one of the abstracts that and incoming work that we started talking about nodules, number of nodules, septa thickness, fibrosis areas that we just presented in the ASLDs. Next, Professor Alina Allen of the Mayo Clinic will discuss advances in learning about MRE and other non-invasive tests and testing strategies. Today, we're here with Alina Allen. And uh, hey, Alina, how are you doing today? I'm good. Hi, Roger. Thank you for having me again. Thank you for joining. I'm, we're delighted that you're here, and, and Louise is back as well. You can see Louise has... Um, how do you describe that uh, that person over your right shoulder, Louise? This is Bones, my new device for showing people where the liver is. I found him in a charity shop, oh. and the liver is the biggest thing seen in the thing. It's like really good, and he's got quite a cute smile, and he's wearing his Santa hat. Makes people laugh. Engagement. And I bet he's a huge hit in the Hispanic communities when you do El Dia de la Muerte, right? You, I you am sure he is. We we'll wait till that you. next year. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. And you he goes really well with your Nursicorn t-shirt. Nursicorns. <laughs> Normal nurses, but more magical. <laughs> there you go. There you go. 
So we all do magic every day, so it works. So we invited Alina to come with us today and talk about specifically MRE, but more generally the advances that we've made in the past year in terms of what we've learned about NITs and how to use them better and where they might be headed. So Alina, you've come on twice this year and talked about MRE, but let's summarize where knowledge on MRE has gone in the past year, courtesy of Mayo and and other people who've published. So what have we seen in the past year? You're right. The past year has kind of fine-tuned the ability of MRE and probably new avenues which it can be used. And this work in the past year or so builds on what has been already known for several years now that MRE is the most accurate estimator of fibrosis. That had been known. I think over the past year, this knowledge has been spinned into several things and I'll outline them briefly. I think what we've shown with the technology here and at other centers have been a few aspects. One, probably the the oldest of these ones that I'll outline is the fact that we can actually diagnose NASH. So a combination of liver stiffness and PDFF is an accurate NASH diagnostic biomarker. So if we want to use this technology to say, does my patient have NASH or not as a probability, we can do that. And that's actually what we're working on implementing it in our clinic soon. The second thing that was shown was that we can automate this technique. And I don't know if this was uh, widely publicized in the hepatology community, but we did publish this in in a radiology journal to say that we can now do this in a five-minute session, so a very short, and we can actually automate the read. So we do not need one or a couple of radiologists to spend another 20 minutes doing the reading. And it has a really good accuracy and correlation with what the radiology would say, both for liver stiffness and for PDFF, so for steatosis. So by combining them, we show that we can actually diagnose NASH automatically in a five-minute session. So we're moving into how to make this better and faster. Probably the most important association we've made was the association with outcomes in in the paper we've talked before on this podcast, which was published in in CGH, where we showed in a very large population of over 800 people that in NAFLD, we can show correlation between what today's liver stiffness says to what their outcomes would be several years from now, about five years in in a median for us. Maybe I would say this is the most important finding that can be currently used as we design clinical trials and as we try to to do more of a precision prediction to our patients in clinic. What's my chance of running into issues? What's my risk of progressing to cirrhosis based on current LSM? When should we look next knowing the current liver stiffness measurement and so on? Mazen Nureddin has done this too. He looked at um, at prediction of outcomes. He designed it using a cutoff of a score beyond which the risk is higher, below which the risk is lower. So that's another opportunity to view this as red alert versus green light. The way we designed it was a little bit different, showing that at each level of liver stiffness measurement, you can get some information from it in more of a continuous manner so that it can apply to any patients with any liver stiffness measurement. From that finding, what's probably more important into the clinical trial translation is that at each level, you can estimate a prediction of problems in X amount of years. And you know that, for example, if we take just the cirrhosis population, which is a major focus at this stage in terms of how do we treat these people. If we use the biopsy approach of stage 4 fibrosis, they all look the same. If we pair that with the MRE, they are not the same because a cirrhotic with a liver stiffness of 5 has, let's say, a risk of running into issues or decompensation in, in about 3 years, which is about 22% based on that paper. But if their LSM is 8, their risk is 40-something percent. So as we try to enroll these patients in clinical trials, we have this opportunity to make 
make them more equal, to make them start from the same start line instead of a cirrhotic starts here versus a cirrhotic starts here and they all run the same race. That's probably one of the most impactful things we can use this MRE as a continuous measure for enrollment and then outcome estimation for sample size calculation. Just one of the questions I have from what you've been saying is I visualize a world where we're actually going to have medications and we're not only going to be focusing about clinical trial anymore, but about how to treat patients. And it's what you're explaining now seems to me to be a package you can use to coach patients pretty effectively on exactly where they're at and where they're going. Louise, you live with this. You may have a different view on that. But so my question is how well you think, both of you, how well you think what Alina's talking about right now before we go on to the rest of it translates in terms of the world where we're not only going to worry about clinical trials, but actually about how we coach and advise patients. I'll just jump in on the second point in that. It was interesting, Alina, that when we were discussing this with Marzen, I raised the question of ISHAC scoring, which subdivides um, cirrhosis five and six and we know we've seen several studies that show a difference not all cirrhotics are cirrhotic and there's uh, there's different grading and whether or not the bar is too high and dropping an F4 to an F3 by the FDA and rather moving through the scales as you've described is a better outcome and that for me as a patient advocate and watching patients we know they get better within that cirrhosis grade and MRE having that ability to define that even more finitely than moving Ishak 5 and 6 and moving down it's exactly where I think we do want to go we want to see the minor changes we want to be able to say that your ability to get varices is less you're going to improve your portal venous pressures you're going to do all of that people really really engage in what they see improving their care and Alina's just described that fantastically that almost stage 4 is not stage 4 <laughs> It's just a mark, but the FDA, is it's too blurred. So I do think we need to move beyond the biopsy. I think the FDA need to look at the MRE as the best device. Alina's just described it fantastically well in the questions. And back to your question, Roger, about how do we use this in clinical practice? So even moving on outside of the clinical trials, it's absolutely usable. So currently, let's look into the non-serotics or pre-serotics, if we should say. It's important for them too, because if you have a biomarker that is the best one that can tell you if you are at the early stage of zero to one versus two to three or somewhere in that area, it makes an impact when when do you follow this patient next with elastography because we need to look at cost and we need to look at the need and the effectiveness of monitoring. We don't need to do MREs every year in those who have F0, F1. We don't because not a lot will progress to something that's clinically significant. So it, what I use in my practice is I, I have a really higher confidence now to say that based on 800 plus people, those who are in this range of two to three KPA on on liver stiffness by MRE, they had a very small chance to progress to cirrhosis in the next five years in the number of like 1%. So I don't need to look at you again in one year or two. Maybe we do three to four. And that again will be individualized based on the person's chance of losing weight and other comorbidities or or risks to progress or or stay stable. But I use that in my clinical practice, even in the pre-cirrhotic range. If you're on the two 2.5 to 3, 3.5, 4, then I will look sooner. It will largely impact healthcare costs. 
costs and healthcare burden if we use that approach in clinical practice as well. That's really both fascinating and important. One of the questions it raises in my mind, and we're going a little far afield, but I'm going to use this to ask about MRE versus other NIT options, is we don't have enough hepatologists to treat all the patients that are going to, once there's a drug involved or a couple of drugs in promotion and the kinds of things that the different public health people are working on. There should be a lot more publicity about the disease. There should be a lot more people seeking out information about it. And um, we're going to run out of hepatology visits pretty quickly based on the proportion of hepatologists in the population to how many patients we should be treating. When this goes to a broader set of specialties in primary care to be the front line, the kind of things in the critical pathways paper that uh, Ken Cousy authored with the folks from all the different specialties, do you see MRE still being the pivotal choice there at some point? Right now, they're talking about FIB4 to fiber scan to whatever. What are we learning about how that process might work in terms of what we're learning about other NITs that might do better than FIB4 or about greater access to to things like FibroScan or MRE. Where do you see that going? I think right now we have a pretty rudimentary scale. It's all comers, then FIB4, which is not very good at, other than saying, I'm pretty sure you don't have this, but how does it work in, in patients on an age scale is still fairly gray. And then we go to a second line. I, I think this line approach is good, but I think we need to be a bit more granular at that first line. We need better biomarkers or better ways to identify these patients other than FIB4. Four. That's where there's a lot of area of opportunity for AI, for how to best using comorbidities or any other properties that we can use from the patient's health history to better identify these people rather than a FIB4 approach. I think that's where the need is and should go as we move along. For the second lines, I think it will involve ideally elastography. If we, It'll depend on what's the first line. If the first line is pretty good at saying if a good negative predictive value, basically, if my test says you, you're okay, then we don't need to look at you. That'll filter a lot of the people. So then we have a much smaller volume to worry about in terms of funneling towards a higher cost type of techniques, either elastography-based, either MRE or FibroScan or blood-based biomarker from which we have you know, some contenders that are promising like ELF score maybe, or is it going to be a combination of ELF and Pro-C3 and other thing? Is it going to be NIS4? I, I don't know. There's so many now and I think their role would be better identified once we do better at that first step for those who really need to have this distinguishing risk stratification, I would call it. So there's a lot of work, which is exciting. There are a lot of people working in this space, a uh, big need. If you talk about AI as the first step, is that largely medical record? What I think I heard you talking about was second was taking everything on the patient's record and figure out what can we piece together about who's at risk. Is that where you're going or, or what else are we adding to that in the first step, if it's an AI-driven step? No, that would be good. I think that's one approach. One of the first things we've we've looked into would be what's next door. So next door is diabetes, right, for NAFLD. So we've been using that as an approach, which is a good first step. You know, mm-hmm. it's better than nothing. Is it enough? I think that's where we need to figure out, should we just start there as a first step and then apply other things? Or can we take in consideration potentially other things in patient's health history? That's what I think we need to distinguish. We need to think of something that is in the tool bag of the primary care physician or endocrinologist or cardiologist or people who tend to to see the people who would we see as well so that we can see only the ones that really need the more advanced evaluation. The last comment was absolutely key. We need to find the people who need liver specialists 
course, the majority of those with fatty liver do not need a liver specialist, they need an endocrinologist. So FIB4 or a lot of the biomarkers aren't really going to pick those out. And from where I sit, using Fibroscan, I don't see Fibroscan as a liver diagnostic for liver people. It's an all-round diagnostic to see whether the liver is at risk. Now that's whether or not that's an endocrinology risk, whether it's a cardiology risk, it's not siloing it into liver. And I know we we sit here as surfing the Nash tsunami, so we're very, very focused on our liver aspect. But we need something at primary care that assesses somebody and filters out the different conditions that somebody may have to get them to the right person at the right time. An MRE will, I am no doubt, in the future replace liver biopsy. There will be one in every major centre. There will be one available for the volume. But if we just tick off the volume of people with fatty liver who need to go to endocrinologists, and to be fair, we can detect that on fibroscopy. And then they sift into, this is your endocrinology. This is your different system. Because as you've said, Roger, as Lena's has alluded to, we, we run out of hepatologists very quickly and then it becomes gastro. In this country, when we were treating hepatitis C, or do treat hepatitis C, the further north you move, the more that viral care and liver viruses move into sexual health because there are limited hepatologists in those specialities. So we then have to really, really strengthen our bonds with associate professionals and align. So is MRE going to be in every single department? I don't know. It's And that was a question I had for Alina. If you had your magic wand, because it is Christmas, and Santa brings great presents, to get everybody access to MRE, what would need to change? How would it need to be configured? Would it be a central model? Would it, How do you think it would work? A central model would be tough. I think the first thing starts with removing this blocking thought that MRE is not accessible. That's the first thing that people say. And it's true it's not everywhere, but that's not that doesn't mean that it's it's really not possible to be available. MRI machines are available in a lot of centers. If there's an MRI machine, you can put that software on top of it. Does every specialty need to have it? Does every clinic need to have it? Absolutely not. But is there a bigger center in a region where these people can be funneled to that? Just like people go for maybe, you know, not immediate tests, maybe they need to travel for an hour or two. Understanding that these are not tests that are done in everybody, are only on those, if we are able to identify only those, it's a small percentage, right? What's the percentage of advanced fibrosis in the population? It's very low. It's less than 10%. That's not a lot of volume. So if we identify those patients and then we identify one center in a region where those patients can go for that one evaluation baseline with the state-of-the-art testing that's the closest to a fibrosis by biopsy, knowing now how to use that information that if you have an LSM in whatever smaller range, you don't need to come back until three to five years later. So you don't need to drive those two hours every year. Or if you have more advanced stage, but not quite cirrhosis, maybe you do need to come back in a year. Maybe we do need to intervene aggressively because now we know and we're confident with what we're telling the patient that they need to have that eye opener, that they need to change something. So it's not this all or nothing approach that I feel that the world speaks about MRE, costly, not excessive, unaccessible, goodbye. I think it's a missed opportunity. We need to figure out how to use it best in a regional view for only those people who need it at the time they need it. I think that's key. And from a finance perspective, the amount of time we could fee up an interventional radiology with people having percutaneous liver biopsies or ultrasound guided or transjugular by using the fascinating that you can 
use that technology and diagnose NASH within five minutes. What's the ability to diagnose other liver diseases? Does that require more help? What are the add-ons to that? It depends. So I think there's a bit of misconception about MRE as well because people sometimes think that they need to order a full MRI to get the MRE. You don't need to do that. That shaves off a big piece of the cost. So the cost of an MRI is mostly that MRI technique where there's contrast. It's a 40-45 minute procedure. It takes a, a long time where you can see everything you need to know about the liver. You can see its shape. You can see if there's lesions. You can see any other things if you're interested. Biliary issues for PSE, any other things. For what we're talking about in NASH staging and risk stratification, we're talking about that little piece at the end of this, which we can get only by itself. So you can order a standalone MRE and avoid that whole process of MRI and the cost of a huge MRI. In the United States, the CMS reimbursement for that is around $250. So it's the cost thing is eliminated by knowing that you can only get that one piece that you need, much less costly than a liver biopsy, honestly. It runs into thousands of dollars. And but you need to know that that can be ordered as a standalone test. It takes only five, 10 minutes by the time patient gets in and so on. And then the information you can get out of that is really the one that we were talking about. You can get the liver stiffness, which is an equivalent of largely fibrosis, but there are some confounders in those with congestion or jaundice and things like that. So knowing to interpret that in the right population. And then you can get the PDFF value, so the steatosis. With these two numbers, you can really know anything you need to know for fatty liver, the amount of fat, hopefully in the future, probability of NASH, and then staging. So not a lot beyond that. I don't think we should ask for it too much. You can get a sense of iron overload. That's the other thing we can add. So people who have hemochromatosis or a carrier for hemochromatosis, you can get a sense of, is there organ overload of iron in the liver? But that's about it. Thanks, Alina. So I want to dangle one thought out there that I keep having, and then I want to go back to where you said, and there's more. And I want to hear, I want you to talk a little bit about more. The marketer in me is really fascinated by how all this is evolving. You throwing AI into the mix as a first step, really in the way that marketers always thought about it, which was very, very large databases, fine patterns. You can start to see that the competition, uh, commercial and medical, for the smartest way to diagnose and track patients in real time is going to be fascinating. You can make a case for so many things will have roles that can overlap that how all this shakes out and how much of it shakes out based on best diagnosis versus most cost-effective diagnosis versus best commercial marketer versus I'm sure there are a couple of other dimensions. I think it's really going to be fascinating. It's not something we've talked about much on this podcast, but listening to you, it's one of the clear senses I'm getting about the future. That's the kind of thing that starts happening when you have drugs and people start spending lots of money on education and promotion and commercialization because all those issues then come to the fore. Finally, Fatty Liver Foundation founder and President Wayne Eskridge discusses the Sun Study, the first patient advocate-initiated NAFLD, and NASH study to be published through a refereed journal. So today, Louise and I are here with our good friend Wayne Eskridge, CEO and founder of the Fatty Liver Foundation. If Wayne's voice sounds really familiar to you folks, it's because he pinch hit for Louise last Monday on our episode on the Splendor Study, being a cirrhosis patient himself who had lost an awful lot of body weight. It seemed like a germane topic, and I thought his contributions were, as they always are, exceptional. Wayne, how are you today? Oh, I'm great, Roger. Glad, glad to be with you guys. And Louise, how are you today? I'm oh, very well. Thank you very much. Great to have Wayne 
going with us. It is now and it is always. Wayne, let's just dive right in. First of all, I invited you for two reasons. Number one, you were part of this process last year and the piece you did last year wound up being, for the first three months afterwards, the second most listened to piece in the series. And then after that, the piece that Louise did on Naffled and Maffled wound up overtaking it in a moment of controversy. And you wound up, I think, being number three. But that was pretty good. And, and second, because I'm blown away by the idea that you from Fatty Lure Foundation as a not-for-profit were able to raise money, enroll a couple of high-prestige co-authors, and publish a refereed paper. I think, A, the results are fantastic, but as a way to motivate advocates to understand what it's possible to do if you've got passion and discipline and you believe, I'd like to start by taking a few minutes and talking about what it took to get the study done and organized and funded and how you put all that together. You know, um, when you don't really know anything and you just say, well, I, I think I'll just go do that. If, if you actually were smart and educated, you'd realize that you probably wouldn't be able to. A lot has to do with ignorance, I think. We were so dismayed by our experience early on in our journey with Nash and cirrhosis at the information that was available and the dissatisfaction that we found when we learned that the standard of care, the standard guidance was not to screen for this disease, which was just a really motivating factor because it, it offended me <laughs> so much that I might have been told somewhere along a couple of decades that maybe I should pay more attention to my liver. So with that kind of motivation, I suppose, and the fact that I had no idea what I was getting into, we just simply started down down that path and said, well, this would be, we, we want to challenge the standard guidance. As patients, we don't believe that that's the way that we should manage this disease. So these guys pay attention to studies. We'll just go do that. It was interesting because I got better reception from the industry than I thought I might. We didn't get a lot of money, but we got some money from a fair number of people. So I guess they were so incredulous to have somebody from the patient community propose that, that they thought, what the heck, we'll throw a dime on them and see what happens. We got enough money together that we figured we could do that. And then I went into this IRB business and, oh, Holy smokes, I thought the 501c3 was a bad journey, but uh, digging in and, and, and trying to understand how you have to approach an IRB <laughs> was a real education, but I was so fortunate. Dr. Verling with Baylor was my co-author, and he was invaluable. I, I couldn't have done this without help from people like him, and I got a lot of counsel from KOLs. I think that our argument resonated with the KOL community because they see as hepatologists people that they know they shouldn't have had to see if they'd have been intercepted earlier and they see the onslaught and if somebody can help that they were interested in at least being encouraging so the novelty of it played to our benefit the fact that I had actually been down this road you know I could I could talk firsthand about uh, what it's like to go through this process so I think those things really contributed and that brought enough 
funding and enough support from the KOL community to allow us to get a project put together that could actually get approved and we could actually deliver in the field. So, you know, it's kind of a long way around, but saying it's really the fact that there's a sentiment in the community that we need to make progress on this front. And we offered one way to poke at the bear, if you will. First of all, that's really inspiring. I'm a big fan of people who uh, run through brick walls only when they need to be run through, but to prove that it can be done. This has a little bit of that feel to it. I'm interested the degree to which the specifics of the design made it easier or harder to raise money, get sponsors or anything, because it's a very different design. I mean, Louise was talking about this before the call, and we'll probably come back when we start talking about the paper, but it's a different design in terms of who the patients were and how you went about acquiring respondents than what you typically see. Well, it it is, and that was really the, the point I was trying to make, is that we were going outside of the medical system. I mean, we were reaching out to people who were asymptomatic, had never been told they had any kind of liver disease or had any particular liver concern. And we know that as a population, they don't really know anything about NASH. But it was our belief that there is a an undercurrent of concern in the population that if offered a convenient way to engage in in testing and learning about their health, that they would take advantage of that and self-select. So, you know, this is a volunteer army. You might think of them as the early adopters, if you will, because they're engaged without knowing for sure why they're engaged, I suppose. They have this sense about their health, that they're worried enough in a non-specific way to take advantage of an opportunity to be tested if it's offered to them in a convenient way. So we were specifically doing it pre-medicine, if you will. We were looking into the community itself and not into the dynamic of the medical profession. Wayne, I could ask you questions about how you designed this all day, but I want to leave us at least 20 minutes to talk about the study. And I know Louise has some really good questions on this. So I'll I'll just step back, Louise, uh, your floor. Wayne, congratulations. This was an amazing study for multiple reasons. You identified people within that 940 that you screened that would be ideal for some of the NASH studies. So again, identifying populations that live within the community that we could be accessing. I think you're right, they self-selected because they had an interest. But what struck me was your figures, when they were broken down, were way higher. I think I was looking at your figures of fibrosis. If you just took the patients with fibrosis without disease, it was around about 3%. And your fibrosis with fat was in the region of 16%. Lauren Castera's studies, I think if I remember correctly, would suggest that only 7% of the average population would have an increased stiffness of above 7 kilopascals. So you more or less put 10% on that mark, which is a concern, not only (laughs) as a patient advocate, but as a hepatology nurse of longstanding. If that was the volume of people we're really seeing in the community. Was that a sense that you got within this study? Well, I think that's because it makes no effort to be a general public 
study. This is a population who is moving forward themselves that would be proactive. If you want to think of it as bias, I think that biases their uh, the numbers. I think if you looked at the population overall, the number would be smaller. But to me, this represents a strategy one might employ to enrich the population that's coming through medicine and to, like, as you say, these are an ideal <laughs> cohort of people to consider for clinical trials because it is the model, basically, of, of the kinds of people they'd like to find. And these are all previously unidentified. So I, I, I think that's probably the answer to that. I think the other thing that struck me is the age range, your average age was around about 46 or 47, which is low, but 66% of that were female. So those 66% females have probably not really gone through menopause yet. And we know that... Did you do a breakdown of ethnicity, age and sex to look at who had most fatty liver? Because we know that fatty liver drives transplantation post-menopause in women. Have you had the opportunity to look at that specifically? We didn't really break out. We didn't do the, the menopause analysis, but we, we certainly looked at age and sex in the odds ratios. And what it basically says to me, well, and you'll you remember our our study because we were in the South Houston was very heavily skewed Hispanic, and you know that's a high risk population anyway. But what it does tell us is that if you've got a 40-year-old Hispanic woman in particular, you ought to be screening that population, particularly if they're overweight, because we found in the odd studies that all of the typical things you expect were true in that being overweight gave you an odds ratio of almost three, but being obese gave it gave you an odds of nine. So we know you know, that's consistent with all of the things we know about how this works. The diabetes and the metabolic syndrome aspects of those diseases were all indicated in our population. So these people were definitely having those things. And we did a fairly extensive survey in our protocol, and we asked a lot of questions about their habits and their experiences and characteristics of their lives. I mean, these are things that they knew about themselves as to whether they had high blood pressure and triglycerides, heart problems. We ask about skeletal problems and arthritis and thyroid and vitamin D. And we ask about Crohn's and we ask about cancer and their drinking habits and the foods that they ate. So we got a pretty robust look at what they knew about themselves and and the way that they lived. The study gave us some interesting, really interesting things. And you highlighted the age because our peak age was 40 to 40 to 50. And, you know, that is not the age when we start looking for these diseases. And that's a big red flag. <laughs> We know that it's progressing steadily as people get older, but it's becoming younger in our population. You know, as we get more obese earlier, we're putting this disease 
process into overdrive at an earlier age, and we demonstrate that pretty well in the data that we showed. Another thing that I thought was interesting was that the R odds ratio actually went down as people got older. I attribute that to the fact that medicine starts to look at them at 50 and 60, and so they're no longer candidates for our study because we only took people that had never been told that they had any liver issues. So some of those people were that would have been a similar population were disqualified in our screen. But I, I really think that this argues for thinking about screening these higher risk people, anybody that's obese, particularly if they're in some of these high risk ethnic communities, should should be uh, should be actively screened. Absolutely. What you did show was that your data supported all of the trials, all of the clinical trials, all of the randomized control trials supported exactly the same data. The weight difference, the high cholesterol, the type 2 diabetes, the improved diet, exercise. Your data was really profound in that, in the way that it's supported in a different population, albeit self-selected. But when we look at poor liver health, that's everybody. That's not just cherry picking. It's not self-selecting for disease. So it would have been interesting to do all of the others as well as exclude them from the study, but include them in the data, additional collection. Because cost, I, I was talking to Roger before we started about the interesting part at the beginning that we always use is it's not cost effective to screen people until we put a really expensive drug at the end of it which just seems nuts to me realistically that we have a really expensive treatment and then it becomes cost effective and if I look at the UK costing system currently to do those 940 scans would have cost us through a hospital system and long referral about £658,000 based on an average cost of £700 through the pathway seeing a hepatologist getting a fibre scan so you've got to break it down into its components from the GP upwards and blood tests Actually, that's less than two liver transplant costs, realistically, and the care of people. So if you save two people on your study from requiring liver transplantation in the UK, that's cost effective in my mind. Just basic, simple maths. (laughs) Absolutely. And just to give you a sense of cost, we got... Of course, some donated time and, and volunteers and things like that. But our hard cost of doing this was about $120. You don't have to save a whole lot of people. To per scan, Wayne, or just for the entire sessions? Per, per scan. And how long did it actually take you? Because a lot of people always come back and say, well, it's going to take too long to do a 1,000 people. In reality, did you do them in fixed sessions? Did you do them over a period of time? Tell me exactly how that worked. It It took us eight months to do that. We ran as much as 21 per people one day, but typically we would run eight to 12 people a day. Our thing was to keep the machine running. Yeah, that's important because when people break down the costs of things like FibroScan and putting it into the community, sitting in a clinic once a week with a very expensive machine makes it really not cost effective, which is why that's not our model. So what you're describing is absolutely where it's got to go. We've got to use it more frequently. It's got to be used all of the time. It then becomes mass scanning rather than a liver 
tests for liver people sometimes, even if the predominant majority of patients coming in. And I obviously have two sides to what we do. One is wellness uh, and they're not self-selected, but they are because they're interested and they want to know their liver health and they want to take control of their lifestyle. And the other side is your full-blown medical uh, referral rates and in things. So it's really interesting. And I love hearing that description because people sometimes can't understand how fibrous gamma can become very effective and reduce those costs. And you've just detailed it beautifully, not only in great data, but also by working out those costs as you were doing it. So fantastic and well done. What you heard today were excerpts of longer episodes, episodes that covered more topics and in greater depth. To hear more, listen for Mazen Nureddin on December 23rd, Alina Allen on December 24th, and Wayne Eskridge on December 26th. Our next full episode with Professors Manal Abdelmalik, Jörn Schottenberg, and Ken Kuzi will drop on Monday, December 27th. See you then.